Hey, everybody. It's The Line Podcast. I'm Matt Gurney. Jen Gerson is here with me. This week, we are discussing how Trudeau is in big trouble. He's facing the three C's, Carney, the carbon tax, and costumes. Further, the CBC is bringing its best country club get-up to a parliamentary cage fight. And lastly, the latest in the Middle East. All this and more on a very cheerful episode of The Line Podcast. Well, we've promised people, Jen, something we've called the three C's. Um, and it was funny, that came because we were talking before we started the podcast. I was just jotting down notes. What are we going to talk about? What are we going to talk about? And almost everything I had started with a C. And because I'm emotionally immature, I decided to go out and start calling it the three uh, the three C's. That's, that's not emotional immaturity. That's long newspaper training. We like alliteration in newspaper land, all right? I'm not convinced there's much daylight between long newspaper training and emotional immaturity. Um, we have no, to recruit somehow. Yeah, I guess. So look, the, the Prime Minister, we, we had a chance last week to talk about this because when we recorded our podcast last week, and we're recording this early on Friday, uh, every time we record early, I get nervous because God only knows what the hell is going to happen. But we, mm-hmm. we're recording it. Uh, we had just caught the fact that the Liberals had backed away from the carbon tax. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh, just I, I put this in the description of the episode to, to make it clear when we recorded it last week, it wasn't entirely clear yet what all the details were. And I want to just be very clear about this. If you use home heating oil and you are anywhere in the country that is backstopped by the federal program, you will get the carbon tax removed by it. It is not limited to Atlantic Canada, but in a practical sense overwhelmingly heating oil is used as a share of fuel in Atlantic Canada. One of the things I thought was interesting this week is that you've seen a lot of smart people. Trevor Toome has been saying it. A bunch of columnists have been saying it. Editorial boards have been saying it. This has functionally killed the carbon tax, but the liberals are not backing off on this yet. A series of ministers and then the prime minister himself has made a point of going no more car votes. We are sticking to it on the carbon tax. Jen, you can have, you can advance that. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Not only is that unsustainable from a re- from just a, a thoughtful, intelligent point of view, it's unsustainable from a regional divide yeah. point of view, which is why we're now starting to see a couple of things. One, the political implications of this particular uh, fallback position is that Trudeau is in deep, deep shit. He clearly had to make a very embarrassing concession on a central policy in order to prevent some kind of serious internal caucus division. We're now seeing more evidence of that begin to emerge. And usually when you start to see evidence of major internal caucus division, it never really stops at one thing. So this week, a PEI Senator Percy Down has written an op-ed basically saying, love you, Justin. Bye. It's time to go. It's it's time for you to leave. Now, Percy Down was a longtime liberal stalwart. You know, he was very gentle in his approach, but it's also pretty clear that he's not just speaking on his own behalf. He's a, feels empowered to speak because there's a lot of internal liberal caucus discussion about the fact that Trudeau really is is not going to be doing, he's not going to be the guy who ought to be leading the party into the next election. So usually when you start to see signals like that, you pay attention to them as journalists because these signals never, they're never singular, right? It's usually the beginning of a campaign or once the facades begin, or sorry, once cracks in the facade begin to show, those cracks continue to spread. It's like a chip on your windshield. You know what I mean? Like you can handle a couple of chips on your windshield before you notice, no, you're going to get a crack in your windshield. I remember driving on the highway once, a freeway going 
towards Detroit, I think from Toronto. I don't know, we're going to see maybe a Red Wings game or something. And I'm looking with growing unease at the crack on my windshield that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. And And it started with a little chip off of a truck. And by the time I made it to Michigan, it was like my windshield was shot. Um, Trudeau Trudeau is literally driving. He's driving to Detroit. Yeah, He's driving to Detroit in the middle of winter with like about 20 or 30 little pebbled cracks in his windshield or or, or chips in his windshield. And he ain't going to make it. He ain't going to make it to the end. So the Percy Down op-ed was interesting too, because mm-hmm. it would be one thing if it was hearing kind of the 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 legions of unnamed source close to the PMO, like the, the Ottawa's just chock a block with those. If they were going the polls suck and the carbon tax move sucks and the PMO is old and, and stale, that would be fine. But what Percy Down wrote in his op-ed, and apparently it was first in the Hill Times and then it got picked up by National Newswatch. He didn't just politely say it was time for Trudeau to go. He said it was time for the Liberal Party to move back to the fiscally responsible center. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He said they need to move back to the center, the center left. So, like, if it was just, look, senators go rogue sometimes. Like, what, are they going to lose their jobs? Like, senators can say whatever the hell they want. But when you have a very politely written op-ed that is not just mentioning, oh, the polls are bad but saying the polls are bad and here's what the party needs to do. That to me, look, it could still be a Senator going rogue. I get it. But that reads to me more like an opening move of factions within the liberal dim going, ah, eh, we've had enough. Well, I know that, but the fact that he's from PEI also indicates that there's something happening specifically within the Atlantic caucus, which also yeah. ties back to the carbon, carbon tax. tax. As well. I think the Atlantic liberal caucus comes from very much a red Tory school. Yeah. You know, this this is not urban Toronto woke left shit coming from the Atlantic Canada. It's, it's uh, the Atlantic it's Canadians, pretty... the last sane Canadians. Yeah, exactly. And and we'll be to the very end. Back when you when you and I are ravering, gibbering idiots and, and have gone way off the, the 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 camp. Trust me, it'll be the Atlantic Canadians who'll be the the last stalwarts of the nation. Um, but yeah, they're 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 pretty grounded. They're pretty centered. They don't have, you know, they're they're not downtown Toronto people. They're not Alberta people. They're not, you know, they're, they're their own thing. And it's very interesting to me that you're seeing an obvious fracture within the Liberal Caucus come from the yeah. Red Tories. Said very centrist. Very. I, I tend to think that most Atlantic Canadian Liberals and us wouldn't actually be very far apart on most issues. Oh yeah! Look, you you put me in a in a bar with an Atlantic liberal and an Atlantic conservative, and we pound a couple of pints. After a couple of hours, I still not, might not know which one's which. Yeah, there you go. So then the um, other thing that more that's, that's, you know what can I can I add this? Sure, yeah, go. This is not even. See, we're talking about Senator Down. We're talking about the um, the the carbon tax being aimed a lot at um, uh, benefiting Atlantic Canadians. But we all, we we just need to rewind a couple of months when you and I started to notice the pendulum swinging big on the trans issues. It wasn't when Doug Ford and Daniel Smith's governments were touching this. It was when the Atlantic Canadian Conservatives started to pick it yeah, up. Yeah, that's actually a good point as well. So. so a lot of the big stories in Canadian politics right now are bubbling up out of Atlantic Canada. Mm-hmm. I love Atlantic Canada. I, I can't wait to go back. It's one of my favorite parts of the country. I'd like to retire but in Atlantic Canada, actually. It is beautiful. Wouldn't that be yeah. great? The food is amazing. The people are great. It's amazing. The people are great. I could have like a little house in the ocean. It'd be amazing. Yeah, anyway, I'm sure um, they'll welcome you with open arms, like a liberator. Um, <laughs> but 
I, I will say it, I say this with Another all 10 love. years of liberal government, they probably yeah, will. They, they might. Um, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't want my Atlantic Canadian listeners right now, our Atlantic Canadian listeners, to feel slighted by this. Atlantic Canada does not normally drive the national conversation. The last three or four months, it has been. That's it interesting. Been. Yeah, it is interesting. So anyway, an interesting thing to note. The other thing that as a result of the carbon tax, now we're seeing the beginning of a, or a nation carbon tax, sorry, a nation carbon tax revolt. Scott Moe has announced. Oh, Doug Ford. Yeah. Yeah. We are not going to be remitting um, carbon tax on heating fuel from, from our, our, our utilities. Again, I think we're going to see a similar move from a, an Atlantic Canadian province as well. So that'll be interesting to watch. Um, so it's interesting to me that the Atlantic Canadian provinces on a lot of different files are starting to um, align themselves with almost the prairie conservative style stuff, which is, wow, that's a shift, right? Um, so carbon tax fallout is continuing. I think that is going to the fallout is going to continue for many more weeks to come. It's going to damage the federal government for many more weeks to come. Um, on top of that, we had a a a return cameo from a, a long lost and seasoned Canadian figure. Matt, would you like to go into the the trials and tribulations of Mark Carney? I mean, no. <laughs> you have I no will. choice. No, I will, you, I speak for, you speak for a nation. You speak for a nation by saying no. And yet here we are, forced yet again <laughs> to have a conversation about Matt Carney. So Matt, or Mark, Mark Carney. Mark like Carney the seasoned a, broadcaster I am, the moment you turn the podcast over to me, I choke on my carbonated drink. Yeah, that's why I was trying to talk over yeah, I know. you. So I was doing um, you a favor there. Thanks. Anyway, so like uh, Carney gave an exclusive interview to, I believe, Mariki Walsh at the uh, Globe and Mail, where he would not rule out another run for leadership Has he run or a first run before? a first, first run. run he's floated this idea before and then kind of backed out um and in the process of you know floating this idea yet again he made one of the most politically asinine statements i think that i've heard in a long while he basically tried to take pot shots at pierre polyev saying i mean i'm paraphrasing here Sometimes these career politicians who have no idea how the world works outside of their space, have no idea how decisions get made, unlike me, former Bank of Canada Governor Marconi, who does understand these things, unlike you lowly plebeians. I mean, I'm inserting my own um, uh, villainous accent there. Yeah, say a very nebulous accent. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of room within the concept of paraphrasing, and I'm running with it. Next thing you know, it's a totally new fictional language. It's like Jen quotes Mark Carney in Klingon. Um, yeah, exactly. Sorry, um, I'm speaking too fast. I apologize to our readers. I'm I'm re- I'm drinking some very caffeinated tea, so mm. I maybe should slow it down. I apologize. Um, Mark Carney. I mean, you know, if if you thought Michael Ignatieff was great, <laughs> I think. There was a piece we were, we ran in the line a couple of months ago, and it was by Mitch Heimpel. And Mitch wrote it, uh, and I've been thinking about this piece actually a lot over the last week. You know, actually, give me, I, let me reset this just a tiny bit, because I actually want to link the carbon tax directly to this. But it's, it's all part of the same narrative here. Go for it. What Mitch had written about months ago for us was that in the the first decade of of this century, there was what we could call the Obama school of politicians, Hope and change. Yes, we can. 
uh, no to the Iraq war, no to the financial crisis, no to neoconservatism. And he had a series of leaders elected in the West. Obama, obviously the first, uh, well, maybe actually Tony Blair, the first, I come to think of it. I'd I'd have to go back and think about it. But you had this era of sort of business friendly progressives, not like old school, late 20th century socialists, but like. I wouldn't even call them progressive. I would just call them business friendly liberals. Yeah. Okay. Of the sure. Small L school, you know? Yeah. And, or maybe gently progressive, right? Like we're going to, like, yeah. we're going to push on some social issues. And then what Mitch had suggested was that these guys had a great run for a while. You had a bunch of them elected Blair, Obama, uh, Ardern in New Zealand, Macron in France. Trudeau uh, tried to, 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 Merkel, to characterize himself as this as, as well. As the, yeah. No, exactly. Merkel yeah. in, in Germany and very much Justin Trudeau in Canada. Mm-hmm. But what Mitch had suggested and is that history is pivoted that Mm -hmm. that era has ended and it hasn't ended simultaneously in all places because different countries are on their own trajectories and stuff but we are now moving out of that era and we're looking at an era where (laughs) you've got donald trump or like maybe we can find less insane versions of that but where the whole obama style of politics had a window in time but it's fucking over and what is it yeah, no, for, for sure. And what Mitch had suggested was that because of our own fluky domestic political realities, Justin Trudeau might be the last survivor of that order. Um, and I guess it would be a toss up between him and Macron. But even Macron has pivoted to the he, like, he, he ain't what he was when he was first elected. And the reason I bring this up and the reason I wanted to set this back to the carbon tax and before we get to Carney is that. One of the last policies I ever would have imagined Justin Trudeau circa 2015 abandoning would have been the carbon tax. And he, you know, he will say and liberals will say that they haven't abandoned it. No, and that's true. They haven't. But they've just fatally poisoned it. They're in the worst possible position now because there are times and you and I were grownups. There are times when politicians have to advocate for stupid policy because it's great politics. Mm -hmm. And there's even times when politicians have the courage to advocate for good policy, even when it's bad politics. But what Justin Trudeau has established here is a bad political case to defend a bad policy. He has no winning scenario here. And I've been thinking about what Mitch had written as sort of like the walls of reality are closing in around the Macron or Obama Merkel era leaders here. Of Hopey whom... changey leaders, the Hopey changey, the Hopey yeah, changey, the Hopey uh, changey leaders, sunny ways. It? It's the and... uh, what do you call it? A cohort. There we go. Hopey changey cohort. cohort. And Trudeau is a very good politician and everybody everybody always thinks i'm being shitty when i say that about him like no i mean that very sincerely he is a really good politician but you and i have been saying for almost a year and a half now he's not anymore he was and people keep talking about his he's a fearsome campaigner he's great at fundraising yep okay fine granted but he's like some of what his government has been doing recently you cannot look at that and go they're playing four-dimensional chess here it's just dumb yeah and when we talk about Mark Carney, and this is kind of why I wanted to go back and set it up with, with Trudeau and the carbon tax, Mark Carney is the natural Justin Trudeau successor if you were of, running of down a list. Yeah, of the Hopi changing era. 
Yeah. yeah. He's the guy who you'd be like in the Hopi Changey era when it was sunny ways and Trudeau had a big majority and he was legalizing dope and doing all the, all of his big policy successes were in his majority term. Right. Mark Carney was the guy that liberals would look at and they'd go, you know what? One day he's next. Justin's going to come in and he's going to tax carbon and he's going to legalize dope and he's going to rationalize the childcare benefits. But one day Mark Carney will take over and he's going to, you know, he's going to take it the next 10 yards down the field. Mark Carney might've been good in 2015. I have no faith in his ability to do it in 2023. And I have less faith in the ability of the remaining liberals around Justin Trudeau to understand why that is so. Okay. So here's the other point that I would make about all of this. And, and it goes back to your meta narrative. Um, of which why, one? Well, why did the Hopi changey era end? Because our expectations right? were the problem. Well, that's part of it. But part of it also was bluntly, I think that if you look back at the last six to eight years, maybe 10, you are going to be able to identify key policy areas where the trusted institutions and experts of the, the country on everything from inflationary policy to certain aspects of COVID policy yeah. to uh, expectations in, on, around journalistic norms to uh, academic norms. I mean, run through the list and you are going to find many, many examples where the expert and institutional, the technocratic class of this country and many other Western countries has shat the bed. And the fact that these, these, the, the expert class, I'm going to, I'm going to generalize grossly here. The fact that this class of people does not seem to understand that it has lost the fundamental trust of the people who it governs and that it has even shat the bed in so many different files as a result leading to the current state of fundamental distrust collapse in media, um, uh, uh, cost of living crises, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, means that when you have a, a hidebound technocrat like Carney come into the picture and basically say, you plebeians don't know any better, you don't actually understand how any of this works or how decisions get made, the stock response of the people whom he would seek to govern with that kind of message is fuck you and the horse you rode in on. You didn't understand the systems that you were messing with. And now I can't afford my home heating bill and my kids can't afford a house. So like he's, he's almost perfectly emblematic of the rejection of that class of politician and leader. And I think that if you were to stack him up against Pierre Polyev, it would be the largest single wipeout in Canadian history for any conservative leader going back to the founding of the country. I think, uh, yeah, yes. It's funny how even when you were talking about what the reaction is, and podcast listeners will never have the privilege uh, of of knowing what our YouTube watchers will know, which is that when Jen was describing what the reaction to Mark Carney trying to explain to Canadians why they don't understand that their home heating bills going up is a good thing. I was very slowly raising my middle finger into the frame of, of the we camera. Don't, we don't confine our potty mouths here. We have visual, we swear visually yeah, visual and things. verbally. I, you know what? And those two, like I, I have actually a lot of, um, 
I have a lot of admiration for technocrats, and I, I think I understand why technocrats are important because you can't have morons running around. Oh, you need you, you need technocrats to actually run stuff, run yeah. the practical stuff. But technocrats aren't the ones in charge. Technocrats are not the leaders. We're a democratic nation. I think and what technocrats we've done... need to understand their place in the hierarchy, and it's not number one. I don't know if I have a concise way to describe this. Like I. I'm a writer and a broadcaster. I should be able to come up with a snappy little description of this. But it seems to me that one of the big problems we have in this country is that our governing elites, and that includes the technocrats, uh, but also the politicians and all the people generally in that orbit, have come to a gentleman's agreement that accountability doesn't apply. Mm -hmm. uh, we're just going to we're like uh, uh, accountability sucks. It's unpleasant. It's un it's awkward. It's uncomfortable. We're just going to sand all those edges off. and. I believe in, tech, in technocracy. I really do believe in that. We need experts in positions of authority oh, and influence, but there also yes. has to be an effective accountability mechanisms right. that when a technocrat or the, or the technocrats broadly fuck up, they get fired. And, and to do that, you need to have an effective democratic accountability process. You have to make sure that the technocrats understand that they are accountable to and serve at the pleasure of, of, of elected officials. The elected officials hold hold the power over the technocrat yeah. to fire them at will, essentially, or within reasonable hiring and firing procedures. And the politicians themselves are then accountable for their hiring and firing decisions at the at the whim of the will of the people. That's that's how the snake eats its tail in a democracy, and it's messy and it's inefficient. But that's what we got. And there's all these different checks and balances in a healthy democracy where the civil service tells the government what is possible, but the government will kick the civil services ass when they're not executing yeah. properly. Absolutely. The media holds the government to account. Mm -hmm. The technocrats call the media out when we're talking bullshit because we don't sure. know what we're talking about. Like there's all these different ways in a healthy ecosystem where we hold each other to account. None of them are working right now. Yeah. None of them are working. So a guy like Mark Carney, I'd probably like him. I'd love to talk to him. I'd love to pick his brain. Like, I, I think he would have so many interesting things to say. We'd have a very happy Q&A with him at the line. 100%. And I, the, I would enjoy the, it. But he lacks the political, like many classical liberals of that party, right now he lacks the political nude to understand the sphere in which he's operating in, the mood of the, the room, essentially. And he lacks the self-awareness to understand how he how he is at odds with that mood. You know what? I'm actually, I, I think that's right, but I'm actually going to say one word in his possible defense here. It's actually possible he understands all of those things, but that he does not have the lifetime of the necessary skill set to do anything about it. Because you might understand that you're in a bar fight, but if you've never thrown a punch in your life, you're yeah. going to lose that bar fight. And it might not be a failure to understand. It might just be going, I'm in a situation and I have total clarity of what situation I'm in. And I don't have the first friggin' clue what I'm supposed to do with it right now. And well, I, I think would... Pierre Polyev, who's a seasoned political brawler mm -hmm. versus Mark Carney. Wipes the floor with him. I mean, and this goes, this, this flips, this flips Mark Carney's own comment back on his head. Or complete, he, yes. He criticizes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He criticizes uh, Pierre Polyev for being a career politician who doesn't understand how decisions get made in, in places like the Bank of Canada. Step into Polyev's world, Mark. Yes, yeah, step into Polyev's world. You have no understanding of the political world that you're seeking to enter or considering entering and no actual natural talent or instinct for it at all. So anyway, that's sort of where I would leave off Carney. I do want to talk very briefly about costumes. Very. And then before we transition to the next thing, it's the third C. 
That's the third C. He said Trudeau's getting killed here this week by three C's. Carbon tax. Carney's not getting killed by Carney, but but... there's obviously the leadership speculation starting. So, okay. Plus the third C, God help us, costumes. Costumes. Yes, again. Once again, we as a nation sigh a collective groan as we contemplate yet again some poor costume choices made by someone with the last name Trudeau. So... I don't want to belabor this particular point because effectively what happened is that one of Trudeau's kids did a really, you know, a perfectly fine Halloween costume where he was like, she, she, I think she, is that the girl? I think it was Hadrian, but I'm not sure. Anyway, the kid was, was like beheaded and then they ran the, the, the costume above the head. So it looked like they were holding their own, their head, own head, essentially. It's yeah. a very classic Halloween costume. I'm sure, really good costume. Kid, I'm sure the poor kid put a lot of effort into it. No, absolutely. And also the, this poor child, I'm sure, has not been up on the daily headlines about the atrocities from Hamas and Israel, okay? So I'm sure that the kid was completely innocent of any kind of broader geopolitical implications or remembrances brought about by a costume of that nature the kid should have been able to use that costume wear that costume in public i have no problem with it it's it was a kick-ass costume it was a really good it was a kick-ass costume. costume but 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 the Don't. leader of a g7 nation with a presumably intact pr team should have been able to look at pictures of that costume with the prime minister and say E, maybe we shouldn't be tweeting this one out in the current moment. And I think that that there was some poor judgment exercised by either the prime minister directly or by mostly his PR team who really should have said, you know, when we're dealing with actual news stories of children being beheaded in Israel, maybe we shouldn't be tweeting this one out. We don't have to tweet out everything. Everything. We, that that's not something we can we can just not tweet this one out we can just not tweet this one out and it will be fine but they did and i think that that was just as i said i'm not am i outraged no but do i think that it was a pr mistake yeah, yeah. and i think that it, it just was an error in judgment and you know on top of a week of trudeau being in trouble it certainly is not a helping it's not helping him. It's not helping him. Let's just put it that way. I think uh, no. I, I think that I think that's bang on. An editor at a at a paper this week asked me if I had anything to say about it, and I said honestly, what I would have to say about it is I have no objection to the costume. The last thing I want to do is drag the prime minister's kid into this, <laughs> and I think innocent. I think in, in 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 when the world's on fire, I I don't think we should be wasting a lot of ink on costumes. But I said the only insight that I think is actually worth commenting on is what you and I were saying a few minutes ago. They used to be good at politics and they aren't anymore because there should have been someone in the prime minister's loop who goes, you know, what? that's a great costume, but the picture might land wrong right now. And and in a healthy ecosystem of any kind, there's someone in your loop who says that. And I want to give you an example. I think I've mentioned this example before. I had a very kindly editor say to me once um, because I had a column. I used the metaphor crashed and burned. And this was shortly after Jim Prentice had died. And, oh. I had a, and I had an editor say to me, you're not writing about Alberta politics, but the National Post is well read in Alberta. This has just happened. You're, it would, let's just use a different metaphor there. And I went, yeah, thank you. Like, That's thank you for you being editors. the person yep. in my loop who like, because obviously I didn't intend anything. It was no, just, oh exactly. yeah, it's a, they're crashing. Exactly. Like, 
the scandal continues as the poll ratings crash and burn and blah, blah, blah. And yeah. I just had an editor go, yeah, you know what? Given the, the context of right now, this completely innocent usage of a fairly benign term would land badly among a segment of the population that would otherwise probably enjoy and agree with the piece. Yeah. Let's just replace it with anything else. So anything else. I think I said something like continues to struggle. Like, and I was grateful to the editor who didn't change any other word of the column because no one mm-hmm. likes getting their, their copy fuddled with. But basically it was this particular phrase will land wrong right now. Let's change it. That's all the prime minister needed. He just needed someone to go, man, that is a kick-ass costume. He's going to clean up a trick-or-treating. But given the sensitivities of right now, this could land wrong if we tweet it. Yep. That, exactly. and, and also you know, and also, the rules are a little bit different when you're the prime minister of a major country as opposed to just some ordinary dad going trick-or-treating. Just what it is. So well, anyway, I don't I don't I don't want to like I said, I don't want to belabor the point. I just think it's 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 the third C in our nice little alliterative trio, and we all know how much journalists likes like journalists like alliterations we'll and triptychs, you know what I mean? So we're gonna go with there. I really want to let it go. Do you want to talk about Middle East next? Or firstly, like um, and subscribe the line. Like and subscribe the like line. Like and subscribe. Yeah. Have you liked and subscribed the line? <laughs> you should like and subscribe the line before we transition to this next topic. Like and subscribe, um, share with everybody you know, help us beat those algorithms. You know what? My my sense, you know, why don't we actually close the loop on domestic stuff? Why don't we spend a couple of minutes? I don't think we need much sure. more than that. Our fourth sure. C, but unrelated to the, the first three C's. And we, we don't like to break up the trios. Trios are a nice Tri- little Yeah, we're going to leave thing. the trio alone. Yeah. Uh, CBC, uh, Catherine CBC. Tate. Catherine, mm-hmm. I Catherine guess, technically could be a Catherine fifth C. Tate. CBC, CBC, yeah. Um, um, okay, Hannah, let's I see if I can it. stretch this out. CBC, Commander, Catherine, chatting contentiously. I can't think of... Um, uh confronts before committee committee before commit before commons committee but see before is a b so i said uh cbc's catherine confronts commons committee there we go there you go loved it that's subscribe now that's that's how you know you're dealing with a professional newspaper all right uh so you actually watched this more than i did i came up with the c's but you tell me what actually happened so i don't want to reiterate points that we've already made in previous weeks like oh my god i'm sorry to interrupt you know what country club cage fight country club cage fight in front of commons committee Catherine tate's country club cage fight at commons committee that's good we're putting that in the in the description box I make that our title. Um, okay, so uh, Catherine Tate is the president of the CBC. Um, and she, I think, I can't speak to her managerial skills in terms of managing the CBC. Maybe she's great, maybe she's not, I don't care. Um, her political sense is about as on point as Carney's, as far as I can tell. So she was brought before parliament to testify to, um, I believe it was the Heritage Committee. I'll check that, um, to discuss uh, CBC's policy on the use of the word terrorist and terrorism, and also to account for the mistake that the CBC initially made, like many other um, major uh, media outlets, after the uh, bombing in Hamas a couple of weeks ago that turned out was really just a misdirected Hamas rocket. So 
I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of this because in principle, Tate is entirely correct. And her testimony was also entirely correct. Parliament shouldn't be bringing up any person within the CBC to task for ostensibly independent journalistic decisions. You and I have talked about the CBC's decision to not use the word terrorism in the past. We both think it's perfectly uh, intellectually defensible. Other totally credible media outlets uh, also have made the same kind of decision. They don't they don't declare something a terrorist unless it's been attributed. So somebody else can say someone is a terrorist, but they are not going to say in their own straight reporting that someone's a terrorist. That is an intellectually cognitively consistent. It's cognitively consistent. Has the CBC itself been perfectly consistent in the use of its style guide? No, but then you know what? Nobody is ever perfectly consistent in the use of their own style guide, so that's fair. We personally would disagree with that decision. We don't. Firm. We 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 think it's a bit of a cop out, and we think it's perfectly fine for news outlets to use the word terrorism and terror terrorist, um, just as long as it's being used appropriately and correctly. Um, however. Other media organizations have different style guides and they've got their style guides aligned with their respective values. And that's perfectly fine. So for the CBC to completely, yeah. So for the CBC to be called out in a parliamentary committee to discuss this stuff is inappropriate. Like, sorry, the CBC ought to be journalistically uh, independent of parliament and parliament shouldn't be able to compel anybody to account for their own internal journalistic standards and practices. Totally agree with that in principle. In reality, in the real political world in which we live, people can be compelled to testify in front of Parliament. CBC is enormously, if not almost totally dependent, not totally, but almost totally dependent on, on, on government funding. And I believe Tate herself owes her job to the fact that she was, if not appointed directly, then appointed at the pleasure of the prime minister's office. I think it was. I think it's technically the governor general who appoints her, but like the prime minister's office chooses her. So to say that this organization is independent of government interference in the same way that, say, Global or CTV is, isn't quite correct either. Um, and the problem is that, of course, we're going to be going into a news cycle when the, this, the Conservative Party of Canada has openly declared that they're going to be defunding this organization. And as a result, what I think the CBC still doesn't quite get is that it's in a cage fight for its life. And Catherine Tate can go in there and go testify before parliament and offer these prim and proper country club style notes about how this is inappropriate. And what 99% of people are going to see is the clip that got put on Rachel, Rachel Thomas and MP Rachel Thomas, Rachel and, and, and MP Melissa Lanceman's Twitter page, which shows her refusing to apologize for getting the um, hospital bombing story wrong. Right. And most people aren't going to be able to or aren't going to choose to say, hey, is it appropriate for her to be even testifying about this at all? Like nobody cares. All they're going to see is Catherine Tate saying, I won't, ref- I won't apologize and I won't retract for making a, for screwing up a story on Hamas and Israel. That's all they're going to see. Ms. Lanceman. You mentioned in your opening comments that public trust was the most important. So I want to speak to this motion. On October 17th, the CBC published a false headline based on dangerous disinformation that incorrectly stated that Israel was responsible for the explosion at the hospital in Gaza that resulted in the deaths of innocent civilians. And if you don't have it, I have it right here. That is, the, uh, that is the headline. It says, hundreds killed in Israeli airstrike on Gaza City Hospital. Palestinian 
Health Ministry in Gaza says, and that was since changed. If you don't have this, to Palestinians say hundreds killed in Israeli airstrike on hospital. Um, Israel blames Islamic Jihad. This still lives on the CBC website. So this headline, um, it's still there. It remains on the website. And I, I, would, I, I would hope that you would agree with me that, in fact, the Palestinian Health Authority isn't, is, is controlled by Hamas. I, I think that is a fact. The Prime Minister, the <coughs> Minister of National Defense, the United States, the British and French governments, uh, all have definitively said that the attack did not come to, from Israel. So why won't the CBC? If I may um, bring the uh, members' attention to the facts and correct the record... Uh, CBC first reported on the terrifically um, horrific attack or a bomb um, in the hospital in the Gaza Strip on, based on an Associated Press report that, we, that is a trusted source of news for us. We, you'll notice if you go to cbc.ca or radiocanada.ca, we often use uh, news feeds from other trusted, reputable news organizations. And we, saw, and we sourced and we cited the source of that information, as um, uh, Madam Lansman has just pointed out. Ninety minutes later, when we received the corrected information, we also updated the site. I just would like to say, we stand behind our journalism. In conflicts and in war, news comes at a very fast rate, and people are claiming on both sides of the story. Our journalists on the ground and in our newsrooms are obliged to measure and, and take I, I appreciate that's an Associated Press article, and your mandate is to, uh, uh, you know, you, you are responsible to Canadians. It's $1.4 billion of taxpayer money. But you said that, the, that, that you stand by the statement. Palestinians say hundreds killed in Israeli airstrike on Israel Hospital. Israel blames Islamic Jihad. That still exists. It is a headline that has been debunked by governments across the world, including even our own prime minister, albeit seven days late. So I want to know if you'll apologize to Jewish Canadians. I want to know if you'll apologize to Canadians. And I want to know when we can expect a retraction from CBC. Mr. President, I will, um, Mr. Chair, Monsieur le Président, um, I will not uh, apologize because the journalism is among the finest in the world. Our journalists um, uh, operate in an independent uh, fashion, independent of management, independent of the board of directors, and independent of government and political influence. They are guided by their journalistic standards and practices, and I invite any member or any Canadian to refer to these practices on our website. They are transparent and they are public, and if you have a concern anyone has a concern with our journalism, I invite you to address it to the independent ombudsman en français ou en anglais in order to have them independently investigate and review the application Madam of I understand our that you're not going to apologize for printing disinformation, but how can the CBC, who's committed to truth, who's committed to standards, not call Hamas terrorists. We saw uh, a, leaked, uh, a leaked memo from the Director of Journalistic Standards, that's Mr. Achi, who sent a directive to uh, journalists for uh, saying not using, to, 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 to say to not use or describe Hamas as a terrorist group. You do agree, uh, it is fact, that, the uh, that Hamas has been listed as a terrorist organization in 2002 in this country, correct? I will uh, address the issue as follows, uh, Mr. Chair. The... 
and I think there's a fantastic blog by our head of news, Brody Fenlon, which you can refer to. He does this very often to comment on making tra journalism transparent, explaining to Canadians how we do the journalism. And in the case of attribution, this is a policy that we have had at CPC Radio-Canada for over several decades. It is shared and mirrored by many other reputable news organizations, including the Globe and Mail, the BBC, Agence France Presse, Reuters, and, all, and any number of other um, agencies. So I would just say the attribution, we use the word terrorist and terrorism, and acknowledge that Canada, the UK, and the US consider Hamas a terrorist organization, but we as journalists, do not make that attribution. Merci, Madame, Madame Lansman. Votre temps, Madame Lansman, merci. Votre temps est écoulé. Vous aurez l'occasion de vous reprendre un prochain. Thank you. Your time is up, Ms. Lansman. Again, I, I, we keep on making this point, but CBC, Rachel Thomas and Michelle Lansman may be technically wrong, but they're cage fighters. They don't care. They're coming for you. They're coming for you hard, and you, you don't know how to play this game with them, and you're losing, even though you're right. And that's that's what I think is is disturbing for me. Completely concur comprehensively. Okay, there we go. I like it when you completely concur comprehensively. It's so much nicer. Almost everything I said to you in that last segment started with C. Mm. Um, I think that, well, look this this loops us back to what we were talking about uh, about Mark Carney. Sometimes you know you're in a bar fight, but you don't know how to handle yourself in a bar fight. Most of us wouldn't. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, Country Club um, is probably I mean, two more C's, but it's also I don't think you're wrong. I mean, I, I think there has been in this country um, a style of, of doing things um, that has held sway. You call it Laurentian or Canadian consensus, two more C's if you want. But I think right. like, yeah. And I, I, I don't think that works anymore. Um, or at least congenial, the conservatives are word. congenial. Yeah. The conservatives are at the very least more combative, another C word. Uh, and they are the politics of confrontation. Another one um, is something that we have talked about before as being not accidental. It is, it is completely coherent. I, I can't think of another C word, but that's deliberate. It, it is it is a cho chosen strategy. And I think they are counting on the fact that people are not going to be able to adapt. And Catherine Tate is demonstrating has, that they are correct. At least thus far. I mean, better is always possible, but I'm not seeing any sign that the CBC knows how to handle themselves in this kind of a fight. And I'm not seeing any sign that Mark Carney would do any better. I don't like the fact that the conservatives are doing this. I liked the no. polite consensus. I really preferred that. It makes our jobs easier, mm -hmm. but I think it's over. And yeah. you and I will adapt. We'll see if the CBC can. Uh, on that note, uh, shameless transition, like and subscribe the line. Yes, we are going to be obnoxious about this. In fact, I could think of another C word to describe the way we're going to be about making these things, but I can't say that on air because that would probably be too far. But do like and subscribe the line. Last topic, Matt. Uh, well, first of all, just apologies to the listeners uh, and the viewers. I I don't know. I, I, I'm drinking my drink on the air and I, like, I think I somehow aspirated like half a liter of bubbly here. So I've been struggling all all episodes. I, I, I just talked over you and made another C joke. 
but no, like, I heard it, word. but I was also like couldn't the breathe. Okay, yeah, that's why. Anyway, well, I, I know, oh. I know the c word, Jen. Um, the the situation in Gaza is obviously a nightmare, um, mm-hmm. and I, I I know that sounds very trite saying this. There is continuing footage coming out of Gaza, which is horrifying, of uh, civilians caught up in in these attacks. Israel controversially hit a um, a refugee uh, camp in Gaza. Um, Gaza itself is essentially a refugee camp at this point. Um, mm. But yeah, Israel said that uh, they were going for a military target and there have been claimed hundreds of casualties. We can't confirm that, but you know what? I don't know the exact details of this. And I think you and I talked last week about this. Even if you support Israel's right to self-defense, there's going to be gray zones. There's going to be gray zones where even people like you and I, who are very much pro Israel's right to self-defense are going to be running up against the reality that there's no clean way to fight an urban war. And I don't, I don't know enough about the specific bombing of, of this target to say whether or not it was militarily proportional, whether or not the civilian losses were offset by the military uh, advantage gained. But what I will say is that this is going to continue. I have in a perverse way this week felt better about the situation for a couple of reasons. I think people need to know what I mean by better. It's still fucking awful and it's going to be worse before it's over. But there have been a couple of encouraging signs uh, this week. First of all, on Friday, the Hezbollah leadership, Hassan Nasrallah, uh, gave gave a speech that he'd been building up to for a couple of days. And the speech is a nothing burger. You know, he uh, Hezbollah has effectively opted out. They have basically said, you know, Jews, death to the Jews. Jews are bad. Israel blame for everything. And Hamas, good luck. They're not they're not getting into this. So I think what we're we're gonna continue to see for now, and God knows we can see deterioration, but the 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 signal from Nasrallah was we were not consulted and we were not involved. Iran was not involved, hmm. and we're gonna continue skirmishing on our border with Israel. We're gonna continue shelling military bases and we'll lob the odd rocket, but we're not gonna start a war. So that to me, we'll see if it holds. That's an encouraging sign. Uh, one of the nightmare scenarios that I've been looking at is that Hezbollah jumping in could be what tipped this thing over into a regional conflict. That could still happen, but I am... Isn't isn't the involvement of uh, Yemen in all of this a little bit concerning, a counter a counterpoint to your optimism? It is concerning, but if I had to pick whether I'd want the Houthis shelling me or Hezbollah, I would take the Houthis 99 times out of 100. Yeah, fair. They're less powerful um, and they're further away. They they don't pose as much of a de-escal- uh, an escalation risk as Hezbollah. Now, does Hezbollah honor its word, or does it feel compelled by later events to change its mind? We'll see. But for now, I'm encouraged. The other thing I'm encouraged about, um, and again, this is very mild encouragement, it seems to me that some of the wildly raucous protests we'd been seeing, at least in North America, have chilled out a bit. And I heard a really mm. interesting way of describing it in some of the news coverage here which is that they're not getting smaller and they're not like getting less outrageous in some of the rhetoric that's being used, but they seem to be getting more professionalized where mm. it's not so much really angry people. It's becoming a little bit more of the, Oh, we got our flags and our slogans and we're marching meet at the legislature at noon and we'll march on city hall. I, I don't mind people saying appalling things in a democracy, as long as it's calm. 
So I don't want to declare victory on this one. So no one do the George W. Bush mission accomplished banner gif here. Cause believe me, I I'm still worried about this, but I think, I hope that things are settling down a little bit on that front and that we might all have to confront really unpleasant stuff. You and I were talking before we started the podcast, you and I have both had conversations with friends in the last 24 hours where the friends have turned to us for comfort because they've discovered somebody in their life is a friggin' anti-Semite. And in some, times, in some cases, the person whom they're talking about this, this to us about aren't even necessarily self-aware of their anti-Semitism. You know, like I've had a lot of people saying things to me on Twitter saying, you know, criticizing Israel is not anti-Semitism. And my response is, yeah, absolutely correct. You know, criticizing Israel is not anti-Semitism. Israel is a, is, is a nation state and it deserves criticism like any other nation state does. Yep. I'm sure it's just a coincidence that you developed this very rational and measured criticism of Netanyahu 30 seconds after Hamas went on a full-on anti-Jewish rape and baby beheading murdering spree. I'm sure that's just a just a coincidence. It's funny how that keeps happening. Funny how that keeps happening, right? Like, you know. Um, yeah, you know, look, what I always say, when someone says to me, criticism of Israel is not necessarily anti-Semitic. I agree 100% because I'm critical of Israel in some files. Their West Bank, their policies, particularly towards the West Bank right now, are appalling. And I think mm-hmm. they're actually going to harm Israel's war efforts. And I think Absolutely. the Israelis should get their shit together over there before some Palestinian with a GoPro records some Israeli soldier doing something that knocks Israel's public support in the Western world down by 30 points. It'd be nice be nice to do it for moral reasons, but I hope self-interest might suffice. Mm-hmm. But I think w- when someone tells me that criticism of Israel is not always anti-Semitic, I reply, absolutely. But criticism of Israel sometimes is anti-Semitic. Yeah. And the question for everybody is, what side of that line are you on? Because it ain't always the side of the line you think you're on. Well, and I, I don't think a lot of people, pe- a lot of the pe- I don't think a lot of the people who are saying stuff like that or, or who are saying things like, you know, f- we talked about last week, you know, from the river to the sea, I don't think they're thinking that's an anti-Semitic position because they're not thinking through the implications of what they're arguing for right how how exactly does palestine get free from the river to the sea please explain that to me no oh well no i'd prefer not to i'd prefer not to which part of palestine needs to be freed um well the part from the river to the sea part from the river to the sea all okay, so where, where, yeah. where where did the jews go in this in this in this version of palestine you'd like no to further freedom? questions no oh, well, there'll question. be palestinian yeah. jews and i'm yeah oh. and I'm, I'm sure palestinian jews and a hamas run palestinian state are gonna do very well i'm I, how, do, how do you think that ends exactly you know like it just they don't they have they, they they're they're not thinking through the implications of these positions right and so no i don't think they're being consciously anti-semitic most of the time some of the time some of them are definitely being consciously anti-semitic i don't think a lot of it is conscious anti-semitism it's just if you take their own logic at face value, it inevitably leads you to a position where Israel has an obligation to be pacifist in the face of actual genocidal people in their midst. And Israel doesn't actually have a legitimate moral right to defend itself because they don't believe that Israel has an actual legitimate right to exist. It's a it's it's the white settler colony of oppression. It's what you right. and I talk about a lot of the time, right? Like a, a theoretical right to defend yourself, so long as you don't actually do it with military force. Yeah, is, and, is as long, and as long and as long as you don't kill a single Palestinian civilian. It, oh, it, it's not. Oh, it's just okay. not realistic. Um, 
which doesn't mean again like um i i can i can understand i don't know enough about the refugee camp strike to comment on it authoritatively but i can tell you that this is exactly the kind of situation israel is potentially going to get itself in trouble over because what people i think what's what's very frustrating here is people have a very superficial knowledge of what the laws of war are mm-hmm. and even if you have expert knowledge ask any trial lawyer You'll have experts both sides who look at the same thing and draw a different conclusion. Absolutely. Israel's experts within their own armed forces, the guys who have to sign off on the legality of every strike, they are motivated to sign off. And, and not, not only that, but I think neither you, you nor I has been naive about mistakes and overreaches that the IDF has made in the past. We 95% accuracy in your weapons when you're throwing tens of thousands of them around, you're going to have thousands of misses. Yeah. Exactly. And then there were also there have also been terrible examples where the IDF has done some really, really brutal and Bad horrible things and to Palestinians. Like, yeah. And has been bullshit about it. So like I neither Matt and I nor are nor naive about those facts. Like we're not. The only thing um, I've ever I remember at a debate once someone said to me, You seem to think Israel is perfect. I said, No, Israel is not <laughs> perfect. I said Israel does not need to be perfect to be right. And that that did not go over well. Um but, but apparently I think, it does. Right. You want to talk about the specific word genocide. I just think that we're throwing around the word genocide too cavalierly in the West once again. Um, so it's a know, habit we have, isn't it? Yeah, it's a habit we have. So there was a, a long time UN official who very publicly resigned over what, what's now happening in Gaza um, and is now calling what's happening in Gaza a quote unquote genocide. And to me, I that's not what genocide means. Genocide doesn't mean killing people. Genocide doesn't mean killing lots of people. Genocide means killing lots of people with the explicit intent to eliminate them as a people. Okay? It, it, yeah. it isn't just you killed lots of people in Gaza, that's a genocide. That it, Genocide has, a, has another connotation to it, and it's important to remember that. Hamas is a explicitly genocidal organization that lacks the capacity to carry through on that genocidal intent. Okay, Israel, ironically, has the capacity to commit genocide, but lacks the intent to commit genocide in Gaza. The, yeah, they, the desire. The, you know, like bluntly, if Israel wanted to be genocidal in Palestine, it's over real quick. A couple of well-timed nuclear bombs would end Gaza as we know it forever. That would be genocide. All right. So I just would like us to go back and be. I'd go back to our primers and be um, uh, 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 judicious in the use of our language of word words like genocide. Yeah. But I recognize that the boat may have well and truly left the port on that one in in the West. So there you, you go. And I, you and I talked a couple of weeks ago about the evolution of language. And we were talking mm-hmm. about it in a different context. But like we created the term genocide to recognize the fact that something new and awful had been born out of the the holocaust and and the second world war and in in recent years when people like you or i and some of our colleagues particularly at the national post at the time when we would have been writing about the use of genocide in um in reference to missing and murdered in, in indigenous women you and i would have been quick to point out you know what what's happening with these women is appalling and i actually don't have any uh objection to saying that colonial policy to indigenous peoples in north america was historically speaking genocidal like i think that fits 
But when I actually st- also don't have the problem with the term cultural genocide, by the way. I think that cultural genocide more complicated, but yeah, okay. complicated. But if you put cultural genocide, I think is is I could accept that. Yeah, I think though when it's never the popular position to be saying this thing is awful, but we don't need to expand the terms for our most awful things to cover it. We can yeah. condemn it on its own merits. Yeah, we can, we can condemn the murder of these indigenous women as being awful because indigenous women are being murdered. We don't need to draw in the language we created to cover the Holocaust here. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not looking to start a different debate about that because I think you and I are on the same page that indigenous peoples in this country have absolutely been shafted and they deserve the fuck better. But I think when we've been seeing this here in this country, and I think others have made it, made this point out before us, when the Prime Minister of Canada would, on the one hand, acknowledge that he is leading a genocidal state, and on the other hand, be announcing plans to celebrate its birthday party on July 1st, yeah. it, it didn't reveal a lack of seriousness on Mr. Trudeau's part, and it didn't reveal anything about the country. What it revealed is that we no longer took the word genocide seriously. Yeah, essentially, in our in our desire to to make the worst aspects of our own history seem, or or to 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 make to uh, attribute them, give them an emotive punch, a new emotive punch, we've actually had the effect of denigrating the the, the, the capacity of the capacity of these words to actually have any emotional impact at all. This is going to be so, a strange saying that someone will probably clip and use against me on Twitter, but I'm a genocide <sighs> absolutist. Like I believe genocide should mean. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Liberal. That is, that yeah, is the one be... that people are going to clip, going to clip on, put on Twitter yeah. to use against you. I think so. But <laughs> by a genocide absolutist, and this is the part that will not make the clip. I think we need to stick to the definition of it is a deliberate effort to destroy in whole or in part an identifiable group of people and cultural genocide uh, i think that's trickier i i understand the argument in favor of that being a coherent term but as a genocide absolutist there it is again uh you can gift me on that i think it has to mean what it originally meant which was the coordinated and organized effort to annihilate a people or, I mean, even, even there are even incidents, and I believe me, I've been real popular when I've made this distinction. Not every act of ethnic cleansing is genocidal. Ethnic cleansing is its own thing, and it's also yeah. fucking awful. But there are times, and I remember, I remember talking years ago, years and years and years ago, with a Canadian military officer who'd been on the NATO rotations in the Balkans. And I had said to him, is, are the Balkans going to have to be a place we just go back to every 20 years and get them to stop massacring each other? And he went, nope. And I said, why? And he says, because it's ethnically cleansed. He says the the nation states that emerged out of the collapse of Yugoslavia and the ethnic groups that made up the former Yugoslavia are now relatively contingent. The Croats are in Croatia. The Serbs are in Serbia. The Bosnians Mm. are in Bosnia. Now, it's not perfect, of course, but he says those regions have been ethnically cleansed and it was ugly and it was awful. But he's, his prediction was that region would probably actually begin to recover now. So I'm not I'm like when we talk about these terms, they mean specific they mean specific things. And I believe we can't discuss these serious issues unless we know what genocide means, unless we know what ethnic cleansing means, unless we know what proportionality and military conflict means. Hmm. Most of the people running around saying these things don't know what they mean. And at on least that note, on that note, like and subscribe the line. 
Um, we have, where, I have exactly- where we are, where we are proud genocide absolutists. Yeah. Okay. So I've got five more minutes before I have to go pick up Jamie. You want to talk about this Biden quote. So let's, let's get to it real quick. Yeah. Um, give me, and give me one second to do that. Cause I'm actually going to okay. read it verbatim. So I'm going to pull sure. it up on my phone. Okay. Um, do I need to make more C words while you do that to cover? Uh, no, I, I should, I, 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 I have it on my phone. Here it is. Yeah. I, I flagged it earlier for easy access. Yeah, there we go. Uh, the president yesterday was meeting with um, uh, leaders from Latin America, some sort of America-wide conference. I think the prime minister is actually heading down there today for it. Mm -hmm. So it's a confab, C-word, of all of these um, American, like Western Hemisphere leaders. And at the end of an Oval Office uh, meeting with like the president of Chile, the president, <laughs> almost as an aside made a comment and I'm going to read it verbatim. And there was a bit of crosstalk between the president and um, the president of Chile, but basically at the end of their meeting where they're talking about like trade policy and better ties between America and Chile, the president said there comes a time, maybe every six or eight generations where the world changes in a very short time. And then the Chilean president kind of nodded and said, yes, yes, we're living through one of those moments now. And the president said, I think we are. I think what happens in the next two to three years is going to determine what the world looks like for the next five or six decades. Mm -hmm. And it came out of nowhere, the president's mm -hmm. comments. It was like, hey, great to have you here. Let's talk agricultural policies. And also, and what it just kind of jumped out at me, it was not a scripted moment by the president. We were kind of lucky that it happened to be caught by the White House pool, who was there recording the, the handshakes at the end of the meeting. Is the president reading the line? Because what have we been trying to hammer home to people for the last three years? Uh, Things are changing. Things are changing. changing. C word. Change. Yeah. Um, and, and not changing in the good, hopey way. Changing in the dark way. You know, as grim as I've been the last few weeks, because we're going through some shit here as a world, um, and I, I want to refer people back to my expectations or a problem column from almost two years ago, because I, expectations being a problem is not a, a necessarily a pessimistic position, and it's not necessarily a defeatist position. What it is, is an understanding that we have to understand that things are changing and we have to be nimble. And... It was interesting to me to see that the president gets that because I think if you, if that's rattling around his brain enough that it just sort of pops out in the middle of an Oval Office meeting with the president of Chile, it's obviously on his mind. And if you look at what the president's been doing in recent years with with Ukraine armaments, with backstopping Israel, with taking on Russia and China, the president seems to be seized with it. And you can criticize him for what he's done or what he's not done, blah blah blah. But I thought it was really interesting to hear him say that. And we hear Canadian officials say it all the time, but they don't fucking mean it. Because Melanie Jolie this week announcing her new Canadian foreign policy. It's a tough world out there. And I'm, I'm, I'm reading all of her remarks and I'm thinking, these are the guys who want us to believe how seized they are with the urgency of adapting to a changing world order. And they're also looking to trim a billion bucks over four years out of the defense budget. You know, I should really write my next column about those Julie comments because I actually have a dark take on that. But on that note, I have to go. Yeah, you got to go. I got to go. You got to go get your kid. Last, last, I told you this, did I tell you last time I was late to pick up Jamie and he looked at me and he said, mommy, when you pick me up late, it makes me think you don't care about me. Wow. Shots fired. Right?
when I pick my kids up from school, uh, they look at me and they're like, oh, dad's here. Like they're, they're my kids are old enough now to walk themselves home. Right. And mm-hmm. we're only, we live pretty close to school, but I like to walk over once in a while, see what they're up to. And when I show up, they're like almost mildly bent out of shape oh. about it. But Jamie, mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. Guilt bomb. All right. Well, look, go get your he son. He didn't even mean it that way. He's no, he didn't manipulate me or anything. He was just like, literally mommy, that's how I feel. And I'm expressing how I feel to you. And I'm like, that's actually really mature. Like, yeah. But also harsh. Well, yeah, I got him McDonald's. It was fine. Anyway, sure. goodbye. Goodbye, love everybody. Thanks. Online, people. Like, subscribe. Like, subscribe. Words. Know that we love you in our hearts. We do. Thanks, everybody.